Have you ever been first at something? Maybe you're a firstborn and you recognize the challenge of being first in that regard, being the first one to head off to high school or to college or that type of thing. And that can be a challenge within a family. But I'm talking about something perhaps a little bit bigger than that, especially when something has not been done before. You don't have that precedence. We like to go hiking and that type of thing. And you oftentimes, this time you will end up at a waterfall. And, you know, we might look at the waterfall. I wonder if you can jump. Has anybody ever thought that before? Off of this waterfall, I wonder if it's deep enough. And, and you can kind of do some sounding diving or whatever to see. Okay, yeah, it looks like it might be okay. But there's something about being the first that's scary. And it's happened on more than one occasion that somebody else shows up and they, wah, splash. And you're like, hey, now that didn't look too bad. I think I can do that. Have you had that experience? But there's something about being first. That's a little unnerving. I came across a few firsts this week. This is the first selfie they're saying and the first human portrait in history, 1839. Never been done before. Photography, what is this? Here's the first color photograph, 1861. I think that's actually a ribbon. You can sort of see that. There's a little bit of color there. We take that for granted today, too. The first car, 1896. Can you imagine the amount of heckling that could be produced from something like, what is that, and what does it do, and why is this useful? Why do I need it? How many of you came to church in a car today? Okay, enough said. First person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. 1901. I got kind of intrigued. This is her picture. This is a custom-made barrel. She actually did it to try and raise some funds that she desperately needed. She did a little bit of research. She actually sent a cat over first that did survive but had some head injury and so on. She crawled into this barrel. She had a hard time getting people to even help her with this because they said, we don't want to aid in your suicide, right? How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? Did the word barrel come to mind? <laughs> Not for me. So somebody went out in a rowboat. I don't want to go in a rowboat over in this river up here anyway. But they did, and there was a mattress inside. They tucked her in. They nailed her in, or screwed one of the two, secured her inside, and she floated down. She went down a specific part of the falls, Canadian Horseshoe Falls. It happened to just be on her 63rd birthday, and down she tumbled over the falls and made it. She survived. Ironically, you, you can tell I was a little more interested in this one than I found. She said this to the paper later. She was quoted as saying, If it was my dying breath, I would caution anyone against attempting the feat. I would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon knowing it was going to blow me to pieces than make another trip over the fall. <laughs> Does that tell you about how scary that situation was? 63 years old. First McDonald's restaurant. This probably isn't even, shouldn't probably be mentioned. Nothing at McDonald's is Daniel Fast approved, so I'm not trying to promote McDonald's. 39,000 restaurants today, though, uh, they make close to $5 billion annually. But it started out here in San Bernardino, and they just were selling some chips and french fries, orange juice, hamburgers, and Coca-Cola. And you can still go see that one, 1948. First cell phone, 
Martin Cooper is credited with inventing the world's first cell phone. The device weighed about two and a half pounds, held a charge, get this, for only half an hour, but it took 10 hours to charge it back up again. <laughs> the day he got it working, he called his competitor company and told them that he was talking on his cell phone, with which he probably followed it up with, but my battery's almost dead, I gotta go. <laughs> First Apple computer, 1976. This is the first computer developed by Steve Wozniak and presented to the public by Steve Jobs. It was bought by just one person, Paul Terrell. The next day, Jobs appeared barefoot in Terrell's computer store, the Byte Shop, and made the first deal in the history of Apple. Again, another first. I saw this as the first artificial heart, 2015, and the more research I did on this, there's different people claiming different parts and different things. This one's made by AbioCore, first completely artificial heart. It functions on a rechargeable energy source and so on, but there must have been something that wasn't exactly what they wanted. It was kind of a last resort thing, and currently it's still not being developed, but they might use, I'm sure, some of that technology. I don't know, but to be a first, it's not easy to be a first. It's easy for people to say that's never been done before. This is not possible. And so in our series, The Days of Elijah, we're on part four, and we're going to look at another first, if you will, that we find in scripture. We're still in 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're entitling this one, The Power of the Truth Lived Out. The Power of the Truth lived out. You know, truth all by itself is powerful, but there is something almost palpable when the truth is lived out in a life. Because otherwise it's easy to say, yeah, I've heard that in theory, but I've never seen it before in all my life. But when the truth is lived out in a person, a physical person, and you see them do something and live in a certain way, you say, wow. And so kind of in summarizing, I think we know the story of Elijah pretty well, but it starts right at the beginning of this chapter with a very bold message. Because Elijah is jealous for the glory of God. And he marches in before the king. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I serve, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And then he's gone. We looked at what followed, that season of isolation, if you will, as Elijah stayed alone by that brook Cherith for many months. We don't really know how long, but he's trusting day by day in the provision and timing of the Lord. We see then that the brook dried up. What's next? And he finally gets the call to go some 80 to 100 miles away, all the while while being a hunted man. And then last time we saw this miracle of provision. He's sent to Zarephath of all places, this heathen city ruled by Jezebel's father, and here in the heart of heathenism, here is this woman preparing to make her last meal for her and her son before they die. And let's just read those verses again. Those are so good. We're in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it 
first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and your son. And here's the promise, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And verse 15, so she went and did according to the word of Elijah. Seek ye first, we talked about, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. And so in today's peace, same widow, same son, same prophet of God, but now we have a turn, and it's a turn for the worst. So we're picking up our story, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 17 And we read, now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. Does sorrow and death ever come to the home of those of faith? Of God's righteous people as well as the wicked? It does. And so here for this widow, there is suffering and affliction and disappointment and death. There's no breath left. And so we read in verse 18, so she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Notice it's a question mark. Man of God, you're a man of God. What am I to do with you? She has her dead son in her arms. What am I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? This is a challenging moment. What is she doing? She's blaming Elijah. This is you. This is your fault. She's blaming God. You're a prophet of this God? And so she's standing there, undoubtedly tears are streaming down her face as she holds this limp child of hers in her arms. Now let's just pause there for a moment. What is the reality of this situation? Well, reality says that this young boy and this widow would have died before. How long before? We're not told. Was it weeks? Was it months? We don't know. But she already had surrendered herself up to this idea that this is it for us. We're going to fix our last little meal and then that's it. And then this prophet of God comes along. And he says, if you do this, I promise God will do that. And so in faith, she takes risk, if you will. And she does the unthinkable, and prepares this meal. So the reality, though, has been that this prophet of God, through this God of his, has sustained her and her son. But that's not where she is at this moment. What am I to do with you? Has God come here to judge me? 
to bring this horrible thing upon me? And Elijah could have interjected right there and said, whoa, 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 time out. Hold on a second. That's not true. That's not what I've come here to do. That's not what I did. You might recall that I was the one through God that's provided for your family. I've been supplying. You're not thinking true and accurate thoughts. Where would that conversation have gone? And if Elijah had said that and responded in that way, would he be correct? Would he be accurate? Would what he said be true? Yet we see in this vulnerable moment with this mother holding her dead son in her arms, Elijah says, I'm just going to let that go. And he's silent to the fact that he's not being defensive. He's not being argumentative. He's not trying to defend himself. Husbands, are you listening? Wives, are you listening? He just silently takes it. To which I think is interesting to what follows in the story. And I think most of us know what follows in the story. But I think right here we're at a hinge point in the story. Because he has a choice to make, a decision to make of how he will respond. And that decision will impact the rest of the story. And sometimes in our own experience we may be at a hinge point And how we respond and how we react to that individual that person we're witnessing to, that family member, that spouse, that child, that could be a hinge point to the rest of the story. How are you going to respond? Are you going to be argumentative? Are you going to be defensive? Are you going to speak truth into the situation? Because that's not what that mother needed at that moment. I'm all for truth. I'm all for speaking true and accurate thoughts. But Elijah in his wisdom, Elijah in his developed character after Christ, the God that he serves, he recognizes this isn't the time for that conversation. I'm just going to take the hit. And what do we see Elijah say in response? Verse 19. And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. There's a calmness. He's not explosive. I don't think she ever would have handed her son over if it wasn't that he approached her with gentleness, with humility, with self-control, with the regularity that she'd come to know. I think they both knew in that moment she was upset, but she didn't mean what she was saying. And so she hands the child over. Again, I want to pause, Luke 6, 44. Pause in this story, if you will. It says, For every tree is known by its fruit. For men don't gather figs from thorns. They do not gather grapes from bramble bushes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. 
And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance, we could say the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. I don't know about you, but I don't really like this verse. I wish it wasn't there because it condemns me. Because out of the abundance of my wicked heart, too often my mouth speaks. And too often it could be at that hinge point where the whole rest of the story changes altogether and goes and veers in a different direction. Praise the Lord that the prophet of God is so thick with the Almighty that the overflow of his heart is good fruit. Jesus goes on, he says, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. Whom is he like? He tells us he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for it was founded on the rock. And friends, that rock is Jesus Christ. Elijah, the prophet of God, is founded on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so praise the Lord, the overflow of his heart, the overflow through his mouth. Give me your son. Sure would be a whole lot easier to say, this is serious stuff. I don't think I want to get involved in this. I mean, what can I do? Truly, what can he do? But he chooses to get involved. Continuing, verse 20 is where we'll pick it up. Then he cried out to the Lord. This is after he's taken the child, right? He's gone up to the upper room. It's just he and God and this lifeless child. And he lays him on the bed. He cries out to the Lord now, verse 20, and said, O Lord, my God, Have you also brought tragedy on this widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul, really the Hebrew says, this child's life, come back to him. This is a bold prayer. He's never seen this done before. In fact, this is the first time in Scripture that this quotes resurrection, which we'll see in a few verses, but it has never happened in Scripture yet before. He's asking for a new thing. Let's just take a moment. There's ten resurrections in Scripture. That may be too small for you to read. I don't know. We have the widow of Zarephath. That's number one. That's where we are this morning. We have the Shunammite son. That's number two. It's very similar to this story. Number three, the man tossed into Elijah's tomb. He touches the body, and all of a sudden, he comes back to life. That's number three. Widow of Nain's son. Now we're in the Gospels. Jairus' daughter in Mark. We have Lazarus in John 11. We have Tabitha. In Acts 9, also known as Dorcas, we have uh, Eutychus, Acts chapter 20. That's why we keep the windows closed in this church so nobody falls out when I'm long-winded. And then number 9, those resurrected at Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew 27. And then last, in Jude 10, we have this hint of a resurrection of Moses. And we have other hints of his resurrection in the transfiguration. 
And so a case could be made. Now, time out. That would have been before, which is true. But I'm not sure if Elijah would have known about that resurrection or not. I don't know. We can read there in the story of redemption, chapter 22. It's a fascinating account. How Moses goes up to Mount Nebo, and I've stood there. And you can see, you can see the north end of the Dead Sea. You can see the plain over on this side. You can see Jericho. You can see up through this valley where Jerusalem was to be. And this whole valley was where God was going to take his people. And they had to take out these other nations one by one by one. But not with you, Moses. And so he goes up here to Mount Nebo by himself. He overlooks. He sees. He spends some time in prayer. And then he falls asleep, and it's the sleep of death. He's by himself. And then it says here in Story of Redemption that Christ himself and the angels came to bury Moses. And they left him for a time. We don't know how long. And then they came back. And guess who's guarding the grave of Moses? Satan's there. And he says, you can't have this guy. He's my guy. And she quotes Jude, where he just says, the Lord rebuke thee out of my way and he resurrects Moses that would have happened first before Elijah but does Elijah know anything about it I don't know it's a question we can ask but still in all of scripture it's the first recorded resurrection that we're about to read of but here it's not just God's idea because I'd be tempted to say Lord I don't know what to pray but just do something That's not necessarily a bad prayer to pray, but he goes beyond that. He says, Lord, bring this child back. Does God do that? Can I pray this prayer? Is this too much? He's praying it. Not just once or twice, but three times. I think of Desire of Ages 250. There is no limit to the usefulness of one who by putting self aside makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. What was those two words there? There's no limit. We oftentimes like to read it the other way. Well, there's limits, pastor. I can't do this and you can't do that. We both know this has never been done before. There's no precedence for this. So it's not, it doesn't make sense. Let's just abandon the idea. But if God's in it, there's no limit. Amen. And so picking up our story, he cries out in verse 21, Oh Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him, the life come back to him. And verse 22, Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. Now I looked for a long time. Why did he stretch himself out over this child and three times pray? I don't know. I didn't find anything that really spoke well or had anything to really say on that part, except the simple fact is, it wasn't all of this stuff that brought him back. It says in verse 22, the Lord brought him back. Maybe the Lord impressed him to go through this ritual. I'm not so sure. But the point is, he's crying out to the Lord to do a thing, and the Lord does this thing. That's the point. And here's the good part of the story. 
I love that picture. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. How much time has passed? Again, we don't know. An hour, two hours, three hours, we don't know. What's the mother doing? Praying, perhaps? Wringing her hands, crying, thinking all kinds of things, her mind's just swirling, having a hard time getting up, no, no energy, weak, the whole thing. And then she hears footsteps. Here comes the prophet of God. Here comes some news for me. What's it going to be? I'm sorry, I've exhausted. There's, there's nothing we can do. But maybe she hears two set of footsteps. And maybe she knows what that little pity patty 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 Elijah doesn't move that fast. And there's her son. And he runs across and they're reunited. I mean, this is a beautiful moment. Elijah said, see, your son lives. And then in verse 24, it says, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Praise the Lord. I love not only the miracle, but I love the results of the miracle. Somehow, even though she exercised tremendous faith before, there was a piece of her that was still somewhat on defense. Is this person who they claim to be? Am I dabbling with something I should be staying away from? But she says, now by this I know that you're a man of God. Her faith is strengthened. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. God is glorified and the truth is secured in the heart of this woman. We could say it this way. The whole purpose, I believe, of this little tiny story is to glorify God and bring people to the knowledge of the truth. You say, people, well, there's only just a few persons Primarily just this widow, and she'll pass it on to her son, undoubtedly. Maybe some friends, maybe some, and it will probably grow. But the whole purpose, to glorify God and to bring people to the knowledge of the truth. And so we have this incredible reunion. And I don't know about you, but I just love a happy ending. I'm not a big fan of books or movies or whatever that just leave you dangling or leave you saying, ugh. But this, this is a happy ending. I like how this ends. And so we could just put a bow on top, put a cherry on top, whatever we want to put on top. We could just have our closing prayer. We could be done and we could sing the, you know, Praise God from whom all blessings flow, and we could leave this place. But I imagine somebody within the hearing of my voice is saying, but my story doesn't seem to have an happy ending. Where's mine? Can't help but think of John the Baptist, prophet of God, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
He'll undoubtedly come up again. To prepare the way of the Lord. And not long after he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he baptizes the Son of God. It's not long after that he's in prison. Bitterly disappointed by the results of his mission. And he sends his own disciples to inquire of Jesus. Are you the one coming or shall we look for another? Ouch. And again, Jesus could say, time out. That's not true. I'm a fulfillment of prophecy. You're not thinking true and accurate thoughts, John. And he would be right. But if we read that account, Jesus continues to work miracles and heal the blind and the deaf and the dumb. And then he gives a soft, gentle reproof, if you will. He says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And his disciples take that back. And John the Baptist accepts that. In fact, if we turn to Desire of Ages... Page 218, it says, Understanding more clearly now the nature of Christ's mission, he yielded himself to God for life or for death, as should best serve the interests of the cause he loved. Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says as well to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. He actually affirms the doubter, doesn't he? Going back to the Desire of Ages 2.22, says the influence of John's teaching was not silenced. It was to extend to every generation till the close of time. Will that ever be said of any of us in this room? Now granted, I don't think there's so much time left but let's just say there's another 2,000 years, and I don't believe that's the case by any stretch, but let's just suppose for a minute there's another 2,000 years. Is there any stretch that Jesus would say of any of us, your influence will not be silenced, but they're going to extend to every generation till the close of time. It would never be said of me. I don't think. That's a high thing to claim to make but that's the claim that's made of John and it's true why is it true gladly would he have delivered his faithful servant but for the sake of thousands who in after years must pass from prison to death John was to drink the cup of martyrdom as the followers of Jesus should languish in lonely cells or perish by the sword the rack or the faggot apparently forsaken by God and man What a stay to their hearts would be the thought that John the Baptist, whose faithfulness to Christ himself had borne witness, had passed through a similar experience. And so the reality was that John's greatest privilege was to share in the sufferings of Christ. Somehow we think death is ultimate failure. But it's truly not. If you listen to Dr. Bailey, he was talking this morning about how they're not suffering any longer. And that comfort that comes from that. They're beyond the realm and power of temptation. 
And though there was no miraculous deliverance granted to John, he was not forsaken. And in fact, it's in the context of this story of John the Baptist we find this little gem. God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. So here John is sitting in a dark, empty cell thinking, I'm ready to go. Jesus, let me at him. I have so much more to share and to do. And the response comes back, no, you're you're done. You mean I'm just going to rot in this cell? I'm not going to preach another sermon. I'm not going to. But if John could have zoomed back and seen all the people down through history that were about to chuck it all in, but because of the story of John, they said, you know, John wasn't forsaken. In fact, John said there's no other man born of a woman that's greater. And they've decided to hang in and to stick with it. If he would have seen the thousands upon thousands upon thousands, perhaps he would have said, sure, no problem. I'd be happy to. And so for John, the purpose was the same, to glorify God and bring people to the knowledge of the truth. I think of Paul. Like Elijah, he too prayed for three times. Well, in this specific situation, he prayed three times that the Lord would remove his thorn in the flesh. You remember that? And do you remember what God's response was to Paul? Concerning this thing, I plead with the Lord three times he might depart from me. And he said to me, reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, more gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why didn't God heal Paul? Because it was to show the power of Christ, to glorify Christ. This last weekend, we were up in Michigan visiting some family, my brother-in-law, Cameron, and sister-in-law, Emily, Elizabeth's older sister, and they're practically neighbors with Jay Gallimore. I mean, you have to get in the car and, and drive a little ways across town, but I don't know, five minutes you're there. Jay Gallimore is a very godly man. He was the president of Michigan Conference for years, retired just a few years ago. And his wife had some issues, but she was dealing with those issues and had been for years and years and years, and then just recently something came up with her health, Okay, let's get this checked out, and let's see, and test after test. No, everything looks okay. Until one evening, while they're praising the Lord, a phone call comes in saying, we found something that we're nervous about. You need to get her here to the ER now. Okay, we're on our way. No, you need to get an ambulance and come now. Long story short, that was the evening. Early that morning, Jay comes back alone. He had lost his wife. And so we're up there visiting with Jay. This has only been, I don't know, a month, month and a half, maybe less ago. Not long. I want to say four weeks. So we're visiting with him in his garden. He's got his garden garb on, and he has his clippers and the whole thing. 
And he says, I, I, I just get so much comfort. And he paraphrased this. I knew exactly what he was talking about. This is Signs of the Times. It's also a ministry of healing. But here it's May 20, 1908. It says, The Father's presence encircled Christ, and nothing befell him but that which infinite love permitted for the blessing of the world. Here was his source of comfort, and it is for us. He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ abides in Christ. Whatever comes to him comes from the Savior who surrounds him with his presence. Nothing can touch him except by the Lord's permission. And some of you say, comfort? Yes, comfort, that God is still in control. He is still on his throne. And if this godly woman is to pass away, it's because God allowed it. He says, this is according to a plan that I have that you cannot see. And so we trust. Ah, what a waste. Yes, in one sense, but not in another, because God has a plan. Nothing can touch us. Nothing can touch him or her except by the Lord's permission. All our sufferings and sorrows, all our temptations and trials, all our sadness and griefs, all our persecutions and privations, in short, all things work together for good. Does anybody here have sufferings and sorrows, temptations and trials, sadness and griefs, persecutions and privations? All of this works together for our good. And you say, how? I don't see it. All experiences and circumstances are God's workmen, whereby good is brought to us. God is allowing these things to happen. He, nothing gets past his radar, but he's allowing these things to bring good to us. And how? He's growing our character. He's growing who I am in Christ. He's growing our faith because he sees down through eternity and he says, this is in your best interest. It's in their best interest, in the larger best interest. And so just like the quote we grabbed from John, a day will come when we can see the end from the beginning. We'll say we didn't want it any other way when we see all that God did through this suffering and sorrow and temptation and trial. They're all God's workmen whereby good is brought to us. No, we're not forgotten. We're not abandoned. Can't help but think of Jesus. He too Prayed three times. Father, take this cup from me. And he pleaded. I think he meant it. But that wasn't the conclusion of his prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. And his situation didn't change. And he drank the bitter cup. And he felt the weight and burden of your sin and my sin. And in that sacred moment, yes, he paid the price for our sins through his shed blood. But there was so much more that happened there on Calvary than simply making a transaction for the human race. Yes, that was needed. Yes, it was necessary. But there was something else Jesus died to do. 
to glorify God and bring people to a knowledge of the truth. And friends, it's not just people. It was angels. It was unfallen worlds who had sided with Christ. Remember the rebellion in heaven? They had sided with Christ. They were on the right side of things, but there was still that little twinge of doubt. Is this really what Lucifer is all about? Is this really what he deserved? Is this really the best path? And maybe they didn't express those doubts, but they were there. But it wasn't until Calvary that all that changed and nobody was on the fence any longer. They saw so clearly the character of Satan and the character of Christ. Desire of Ages 758 says, not until, not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen worlds. That was the defining moment. And I believe through on into eternity, that will be the defining moment. Who is God? Let's look and see. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings, the last link of sympathy. We could say the last shred of sympathy, the last ounce of The last grain of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Yes, it was a transaction. Yes, the blood was necessary. But there were minds of people that were freed at that moment when they said, look at what he's willing to do. And so I like this story of the woman of Zarephath and the healing of her son. I love to see families restored I love to see life conquer death. I'm the first one that cries. Anytime, it can be a simple thing as they've been trying so hard to win this football game and now they finally win. And I'm just over there like, ah. I love to see people overcome difficult odds and circumstances and to, to have a happy ending and an incredible reunion. But the reality on this earth is not every story has a happy ending. Not every prayer for healing is answered the way we want. Not every family is reunited. Not every mother gets her son back. Or do they? Could it be that this story is somehow prophetic of what's coming? Of the resurrection that's coming? Of the life being breathed back into the loved ones that we have lost? As we see Jesus... The one with scars in his hands and his feet coming back to take us home. Maybe you and I do get a happy ending. Maybe we should take the maybe out of it. Somebody sent me something just today. It said, normal's not coming. Jesus is coming. Revelation 1.18 says, I am he who lives and was dead. He's been there. We don't stop and think about that too often. He's been there. He knows what dead's like. If you can. You're asleep. You don't really know anything. But he says, I've gone through it. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. 
Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Revelation 1.18. Friends, the keys that Christ has are the keys of death. He has the power. He has the authority over death. He has demonstrated that time and time again. And his promise today is that whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I'm not trying to keep this from anybody. But I came to die to give it to everybody. And now I have the keys. I have access. I have power. I have dominion. I have the ability to write your happy ending. And again, the running theme and thread throughout. Jesus came to glorify his Father and to bring people to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, we live in a time where people are desperate. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what is up and what is down. They don't know which way is left or which way is right. But we've been given a sure word of prophecy. We've been given truth. And the world's longing for genuine people to show not just the power of the truth, but have it lived out. And that wasn't just the story of Elijah in this case, or John the Baptist, or Paul, or Christ. We could go down through, I mean, we have countless examples. But the real question I want to ask this morning, are you willing to be an example too? It's a simple prayer. It says, Lord, I want to glorify you and bring people to a knowledge of the truth. I don't know how to do that. You just love on people. You pray, Lord, help me to live what your word tells me to do. Help me to be kind and gracious. And when people throw those angry darts, it's you and it's your fault to just take it and direct them to something higher. That by their interaction with us, Lord, help us. They will be able to say like the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. The world is looking for a living example of the truth. May the Lord help us to be that in this time of verse history. Dear Heavenly Father, may that be the prayer of our hearts today. We long to be holy yours, to glorify you, to help bring people to a knowledge of the truth. Teach us how. Show us how. Impress us how. As we spend time in your word and in prayer day by day, that you may be glorified is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.